Hello, my name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure you know more than your friends or your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we will focus on the EU-China summit, Brazil taking over the presidency of the G20, and Egypt's presidential election. On December 7th and 8th, so do be aware these dates might be subject to change, the EU and China are going to hold their 24th summit. The relationship between the EU and China has definitely not been a smooth one, especially recently. Over the last few years, it has deteriorated across a number of issues. The EU's continued frustration with human rights issues in China, China's regional assertiveness, the role China is playing on Russia and Ukraine, and a deep concern in the EU over China's economic model and practices. You can tell there are a lot of different ways to look at the summit. And what we will do today is take a slightly trade-focused approach because I have one of the associate directors in the GC trade team with me, Alessandro Gangarossa. Welcome, Alessandro. Hi, Isabel. So I've run through a couple of the big ticket items that have impacted the EU-China relationship lately, Alessandro, but I really want to hear your take. Why do you say the summit matters? I think there are probably three main reasons. First of all, uh, this is likely to be the last one before the European Parliament elections next year, but also uh, the um, end before the end of the uh, current commission term, a commission that really took an approach to China focus on the paradigm between uh, competitor, rival, and partner, but also European Commission that has tried to uh, conceptualize the concept of the risking and uh, European economic uh, security. These two items are going to be fundamental to shape and inform the relationship between EU and China in the coming years, but they're going to be likely be defined and elaborated by the next European Commission. The second item uh, is um, the fact that this is going to be the first one being held in person after a couple of years of virtual or no summits at all. Uh, you might recall the 2020 and 2022 were uh, online uh, meetings and 2021 did not happen at all. Uh, in light also of a further uh, cooling down of the bilateral relationship. But I think 2023 has been certainly uh, interesting to see how the two sides heavily invested in the relationship with a number of meetings and uh, visits on both sides uh, taking place throughout the year. Um, if you just look at the EU side, Macron, Scholz, Charles Michel, uh, Borrell, Dombrovskis and Breton all uh, visited China recently, culminating in the summit uh, just in a couple of weeks' time. And last but not the least, you know, uh, it's going to happen very close to the next U.S. Trade and Technology Council, and whether or not we like it in Europe, we need to talk about U.S. if we want to talk about China. Uh, you know, the TTC has been certainly a platform to uh, discuss how to approach China on, on both sides, where feasible, as they say, uh, and I think this is going to be a test to see how far the U.S. and U.S. are on China. Very interesting. You mentioned three things. The timing, 
especially with that being the last for the commission that coined uh, de-risking, the fact that it's in person and follows this recent uptick in diplomatic relations, and also the proximity to the Trade and Technology Council and how it might serve as a check-in on how to balance the transatlantic relationship and US attitudes to China with the EU's own. So this is clearly an inflection point in the bilateral relationships. And as far as I can tell, both sides have quite clear objectives and plans for what to get out of the summit. What's your view? What is top of the agenda for both sides here? You're absolutely right. I think both sides have a very clear set of priorities in mind. Uh, I mean, if we think about China, I think they're always being very pragmatic when it comes to their engagement with Europe. Uh, they always had a preference in focusing on member state capitals, you know, understanding the limitations of Brussels' uh, foreign policy agenda, but also understanding that uh, it's important to have a, a, a kind of a good communication with the European leadership. And I think they're going to come into the summit with two main things in mind. First, in the context of the multifaceted relationship um, and approach that the EU is taking on China, try to strengthen the element of partnership, in particular looking at the horizontal issues, so climate change, food security, global health, and also multilateralism but also as portraying China as a stabilizing actor in regional conflicts, especially around uh, Ukraine. Second, toning down the EU de-risking rhetoric, as seen as Beijing, uh, by kind of undermining the relationship, uh, both in political and economic terms, uh, with the EU. And, you know, the case in point here is the EU anti-subsidy investigation on uh, electric vehicles from China. I think uh, this is going to be a major discussion in uh, during the summit. Of course, another element will be providing reassurances to economic operators around the path of economic reform in China and the overall openness of the business environment. Uh, on the EU side, as you were saying, this is going to be a very pivotal summit uh, for the European Commission. This is the last chance to get some wins on the board when it comes to China. You know, in the past five years, they spent a lot of time developing a toolkit to essentially build leverage to extract concessions from China on market access issues, reciprocity, transparency on subsidies and market economy issues more broadly. Uh, so I think they're going to really go into the summit assertively this time. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the anti-subsidies investigation, but also the potential use of uh, the international procurement instrument on the tech sector, you might see how this is going to be used as a you know, building leverage ahead of the summit in a view of extracting some concrete and clear concessions from, from China. Whether they're going to manage to do it, it's hard to say. You've basically set yourself up perfectly for the last question. But let me quickly summarize. So China, you say, quite pragmatic, focusing on horizontal issues, health, climate change, trying to weaken the de-risking rhetoric and trying to provide some assurances on economic openness. Whereas the EU, you think, might be quite assertive, looking for that last opportunity to mark a win and looking to get some clear concessions from China. But clearly, lots of divisive and sensitive issues that need addressing here. What do you actually expect is going to be possible? What do you expect either side is going to be able to achieve both at the summit and I guess beyond? You know, it's always very hard to predict. As we speak, I think the, the prospects of a joint final communication are very low. 
but I think, you know, as we were discussing before, there's been a lot of choreography about uh, visiting and meetings on the um, you know, bilateral basis and a lot of kind of technical preparations as well went into this. So uh, we'll need to see. I think, broadly speaking, even if there is not a final communique, you might expect the EU coming up with uh, the usual statement around continued cooperation on climate change, seeing China as a partner on that issue but also working towards on the concern and the issue that we just identified uh, before. I mean, the extent um, to which these commitments are going to be clear and concrete is going to be the ultimate test on whether or not this is a meaningful summit. Uh, you know, more often than not, uh, the most interesting parts of the summits are what is not included in the final community care rather than what it is included. So uh, we'll have to see. But I think it gives us an indication of... Um, the, the level of communication, both at political level and technical level, that has taken place in 2023. And you might see also a bit of a change compared to a couple of years ago. Uh, the uh, resumption of trade and economic working groups a couple of weeks ago, even if not very concrete right now, it's a sign of definitely an appetite to continue to uh, exchange and communicate even in the difficult state of affairs of the relationship. It's going to be an absolutely fascinating one to watch. If I remember correctly, the last two summits both didn't have joint communiques, but still they might be able to make some progress. So let's see what comes out of the summit once it all takes place. And um, we look forward to the coverage um, coming out of the trade team once it's happened. Thanks very much, Alessandro. Thank you. On December 10th, Egypt will head to the polls for a presidential election. President Sisi has been in power since 2014 and he is running again. And he's running against the backdrop of one of the worst economic crises that Egypt has seen in decades. To talk about that election, I have Ahmed Halal with me, the practice director of GC Mina. Hi, Ahmed. Hi, Isabel. Thank you for having me. Well, absolute pleasure. First off, it's actually quite interesting that these elections are taking place on December the 10th and 11th, because if I understand correctly, they were brought forward from early next year. Um, what do you think is behind that? Why did the um, Egyptian government decide to do that? Well, Egypt is in the throes of its worst economic crisis in decades. And the uh, the government, the incumbent, Abdel Fattah Sisi, wants to bring the date forward in order to have the election and, and ensure that he has uh, another term um, to uh, create more economic reforms and devalue the Egyptian currency again for the fourth time since March 2022, which will... Um, without a doubt, exact more economic pain on the Egyptian people. And so he wants to get that politically economic, uh, politically difficult decision out of the way before he begins his latest term in office. That's quite interesting. You're kind of almost presupposing the, the outcome of the election. You think this is absolutely certain? You're expecting Sisi to win another term? Yes, I think there there isn't really a credible opposition to speak of, and um, the the president is expected to win almost uh, a unanimous vote. Uh, and there's there's uh, ha there's been years of sort of sending the opposition underground and uh, no organized opposition and a, a strong enough block in the opposition to um, uh, make it a different outcome. Because I think back in uh, 2018, when we had the last election, he won with nearly 95% of the vote. Do you think it's going to be similar, similar scale of victory? Yes, absolutely. I think the narrative has been controlled uh, by the by the state-controlled media. And uh, the as I said, th there was one uh, person who was going to run. They, they found that his phone was hacked. Investigations found that his phone was 
was hacked and his supporters and their and their scores have been either detained or uh, you know disappeared so uh definitely uh the, the president the incumbent is expected to have another term in office it's quite interesting that it is so certain of course you, you've explained there is really no credible opposition but you would still think that the economic backdrop which as we've already touched on is so dire doesn't change that but i'd be curious to kind of dig into that economic question a little bit more what is behind that why is the economy in such dire straits well it was a, a double whammy you first had the covid disruptions and the economy uh, the the economy is really dependent on tourism and it had uh, there was obviously uh, uh, a, a lockdown in, in many countries that were sending tourists to egypt and egypt itself was dealing with the pandemic so um, tourism uh, arrivals collapsed. And then you had shortly thereafter, just as the recovery was gaining steam, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then again, tourism took a severe shock uh, because of the, because t- Russia and Ukraine are Egypt's largest markets for uh, tourism arrival. And indeed, Egypt is intertwined with those countries in, in another important way, which is they import, Egypt is the second importer of wheat in the world, second or third. Um, and gets, at least before the war, most of its wheat, uh, more than 80% of its wheat, used to get it from Russia and Ukraine. It has diversified now, uh, but um, the, the, the short-lived uh, COVID recovery and then the war um, have, have increased the import bill for uh, food and fuel uh, for Egypt and has forced Egypt to borrow more and more internationally at increasingly high interest rates. So uh, lower fiscal receipts, higher debt burden, higher interest rates, higher import bill uh, have all uh, led to this crisis. It's a, it's a pretty dire economic picture that you're painting. And I quickly wanted to touch on something else that you said at the very beginning, um, a potential devaluation of the Egyptian pound. Uh, we've already seen a couple. You think this is definitely going to happen um, as soon as the election is done? I think all all this the all the traders and and all the people who look close at Egypt are expecting this to happen soon after uh, the election. Uh, investors are also expecting it, um, and it's because one of the conditions that the IMF has put, as you know, they agreed uh, in in uh, December 2022 on another extended fund facility, a three billion dollar loan uh, to Egypt, and one of the conditions attached to that. Uh, package is that Egypt would uh, commit to a durable floating exchange rate regime um, and and depart from uh, the current practice, which is to have a controlled um, uh, currency and defending the Egyptian pound in order to stem um, uh, the inflation that we're seeing in Egypt, which, which is at historic highs of uh, 40%. Uh, so the devaluation is expected to happen in order to uh, make good on their commitments to the IMF. Uh, and uh, get that support coming into the Egyptian economy and unlock further uh, additional financing from Egypt's bilateral partners. Very interesting. Um, And we've also touched on the disruption caused by both COVID, then Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and I guess there's now another conflict that we have to talk about, um, which is physically much closer to to Egypt. How do you think the, the war in Gaza has affected Egypt? Is that playing a role in the election at all? Yeah, I mean, there's out, out, an outpour of, I mean, there's an outrage in the Egyptian populace, in Egyptian public, um, uh, at the the response, the Israeli, uh, uh, what it perceived, disproportionate response to the uh, Hamas attacks, 
at a popular level, there has been some uh, uh, demonstrations uh, in, in a show of support for um, uh, Palestinians and, 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 and Gaza. Uh, but the the politically that won't change the the calculus in Egypt, and I think the will impact the outcome of, of of the elections. The real risk to regime stability and and the longevity of this of this government is 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 the economic situation. And um, if things from a livelihood point of view become worse and worse for Egyptian people, um, then you could start to see um, uh, social safety nets uh, being reduced and 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 people um, uh, really suffering, and that's when you might have um, a, a a social instability situation. But in terms of Gaza specifically, uh, Gaza is obviously uh, right there at Egypt's doorstep, and um, again the the tourism industry has been worst affected uh, because uh, uh, bookings and bookings of uh, you know tourism bookings months on end are now getting cancelled in Egypt, and like I said, uh, it accounts for. Uh, about 11 or 12 percent of Egypt's GDP, and is a huge employer. As you know, it's a labor-intensive industry, so it's a huge employer for uh, uh, the Egyptian economy, and that's been the main direct impact. The other impact, of course, is 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 on natural gas. Um, Israel has shut off its second-largest gas field, the Tamar field, uh, which used to supply Egypt uh, with gas for uh, by pipeline, and Egypt would then process that gas and export it to Europe and creating uh, foreign currency uh, receipts uh, for for the government. Those ground to a halt. They are now back incrementally. But Egypt's natural gas exports, because of what's happening in Israel, uh, have uh, have really plummeted. Um, Egypt's own domestic production is is under stress as well. Um, its field is 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 facing facing some technical problems. So its own production is is down, uh, and its uh, uh, overall. Uh, hydrocarbon sector is really facing the headwinds. Um, so Gaza definitely is a uh, difficult economic headwind for Egypt. Um, Ahmed, thank you very much. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Clearly, we don't have a lot of um, uncertainty about who is going to win this election, but a lot of interesting developments to watch as we head into the election and then as the um, CC government serves another term, what's going to happen next on the economic front is going to be fascinating to watch, of course, from an Egyptian perspective, but also for any investors looking at Egypt. So thanks very much, Ahmed. Thank you for having me. On the 1st of December, Brazil will take over the presidency of the G20 from India. As we have seen both India and Indonesia demonstrate, the G20 presidency is really a key opportunity to shine on the global stage and to set the agenda for international collaboration. Given both the current economic outlook as well as the geopolitical backdrop with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but also now the Israel-Hamas conflict, the need for collective action to tackle those challenges is clearly as urgent as ever. But equally, as we have seen over the last two years, geopolitical tensions can also undermine what the G20 is able to do. To discuss this, I have Ed Kay with me, a senior associate and a colleague of mine in the Global Macro team. Hi, Ed. Hi as well. Thanks for having me. So before we look ahead, let's actually quickly look backwards. India's tenure as G20 president is coming to an end. What would you say? Was it a success? It's a good question and there's no simple answer to it, really. Um, <clears throat> I mean, measuring success is hard enough in everyday life, let alone measuring success when you're talking about the leader of an international group like the G20, and it partly depends on your perspective. Looking at the G20 summit in September, 
uh, technically it broke the record for the number of outcomes and presidency documents recorded over two days. That was 112, um, which sounds impressive. But realistically, India's G20 presidency will mostly be remembered for two things. The first is Prime Minister Modi's persuasion of other G20 leaders to sign off a consensus statement at the summit against many expectations. That declaration that dropped critical references to Russia but retained language against the war in Ukraine was seen as a rare moment of global solidarity during the Indian presidency. Aside from that, India helped raise the profile and voice of the Global South by introducing the African Union as a permanent member of the G20 group. And Modi's expressed confidence that the priorities of the Global South will be taken forward and strengthened during Brazil's G20 presidency. But the extent to which, as you alluded to, new emerging geopolitical tensions, like the conflict in the Middle East or deteriorating US-China relations, might impact progress or distract from other pressing policy areas remains to be seen. Interesting. Yeah, I would agree. What really stays in everyone's mind is that ability to sign off a joint declaration with language on Ukraine. And of course, for me, um, often looking at African topics, the admission of the African Union was a, a major step. And we've now alluded to the, the challenging global environment a bit. And another aspect of that is that we really have quite low levels of trust between developing countries and developed countries. And do you think in that situation, is Brazil well suited to hosting the G20 next? Yeah, I think that Brazil is actually very well suited to take over the presidency for two main reasons. Um, firstly, President Lula, a year into his term, has been a long-standing promoter of the shift to a multipolar world. Brazil not only has strong connections to the G7 and the G20, but it's also a key promoter of different trans-regional groups, including the newly expanded BRICS Plus and several Latin American coalitions such as UNASUR. This puts Brazil in a prime position to bring to the table different key actors to help mobilize access to finance and drive other key initiatives developed by the G20 over the last year. On top of that, Brazil will also hold both the BRICS Plus and COP30 presidencies in 2025, providing it with a unique chance to push forward a two-year international agenda which addresses climate while putting the needs of the global south at the forefront. And secondly, Brazil is a credible advocate for the interests of global south countries, given its own challenges of reconciling economic and climate efforts. Despite its status as a Latin American economic superpower, some 33 million Brazilians go to bed hungry every night. And it's also home to the Amazon rainforest, renowned for its remarkable biodiversity. And Brazil is, of course, renowned for abundant natural resources. So it's also on the front lines of the climate crisis. This exposure makes it an ideal candidate to steer discussions and propose solutions around development and climate. So in short, the G20 leadership comes at the perfect time for Brazil to help drive fundamental change. That's very interesting. I guess uh, such an ideal timing also means that expectations are going to be quite high, especially with the backdrop of that ability to shape a two-year agenda. 
So speaking of agendas, what do you think are going to be the most pressing priorities for, for resilience? Uh, one immediate expectation will be for Brazil to prioritize the climate segment of the G20's finance track agenda, looking to amplify both ambition and efforts. Of course, the big, the big question to bear in mind is how can developing countries shield their economies and citizens against the worst impact of climate change whilst realising growth opportunities emerging from the green transition? And there's no doubt, as we've alluded to, that solutions are needed now and the resources required for this are vast. Developing countries, excluding China, will require an additional trillion US dollars of external funding every year if they are to achieve their sustainable development and climate goals by 2030. So mobilizing extra funding will also be a key focus. And to this end, Brazil is planning to roll out the minimum 15% tax on profits of multinational corporations. If implemented, it would ensure that large multinational companies pay a minimum 15% tax on all their profits in all jurisdictions where they operate. And it will def deter profit shifting to tax favorable locations. And it also will help Brazil to align more closely with the G20's wider agenda to cut out tax evasion. There's been no final agreement yet for its universal adoption, given ongoing complexities in uh, negotiations. But Brazil aims to go further in the discussion as it looks to reduce those differences between advanced and emerging economies and to promote the green agenda. And the OECD estimates that if implemented, this tax could generate up to $200 billion in additional annual global revenue, which would help a bit, but obviously there's still a great need for further funding. Fantastic. Um, that means it also really ties in those Brazilian priorities with what we discussed last time, um, last time around when I hosted this podcast uh, last month and talked about COP, where one of the biggest questions is going to be, how do you mobilize the funding that is needed to address the climate emergency? And the international tax question is also a very interesting one, really complex. Let's see if Lula can shift the dial there. Another topic where the dial still needs shifting is on the topic of structural reforms of the international institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. In the last joint declaration under India's presidency, we got the G20 broadly endorsing that reform is needed, but we didn't get very far. And we didn't get very far either at the IMF and World Bank meetings in October. Do you think the Brazilian presidency can change that? Yeah, the annual meetings were a little bit disappointing on that front, but uh, it's of course perhaps unsurprising given that the fragmented geopolitical backdrop that we've mentioned makes consensus building much tougher. Um, and clearly Brazil will also have its work cut out. But I think that its obvious vested interest uh, means that Brazil will naturally continue to push for revamping the IMF and World Bank's governing structures to better reflect the emergence of its own economy, as well as China's and other emerging economies. But I do think that establishing greater influence on where World Bank funding goes might have to wait, though. Um, yeah, deteriorating US-China relations have dissuaded the US and will continue to dissuade the US from reviewing those shareholdings. And of course, it's important to remember that next year, we've got key upcoming elections in the US, the European Parliament and the UK. 
which means that any substantial reforms would likely take years to materialise anyway. Instead, I think that there is some chance that Brazil might have success in making mobilisation efforts more effective, um, and this would likely involve streamlining disbursement periods, reducing bureaucracy, and offering guarantees and insurance for long-term projects. But I think that's likely to come from existing climate funds or other development banks rather than substantial changes to multilateral development banks like the IMF and the World Bank. So yeah, in, in short, Brazil might struggle to make a, a, a real impact, but the next year and the next two years uh, driving the agenda, I think that Brazil has uh, a pretty good chance to stab uh, driving positive change. What you said here about the elections coming up in the next year, I think, is a very good point. The US administration um, that we're currently seeing might not be the same um, come the end of next year. But Brazil has some time. They do take over the presidency now. But it is not until um, November next year that they are hosting the next G20 summit. So lots of time to um, work in the background and see where they can get to. We're definitely going to keep our eyes um, peeled for that. So thanks very much, Ed. No worries. Thanks a lot. And on this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Months Ahead podcast, and we are clearly looking at a very interesting December. We are going to see whether China and the EU manage to achieve their respective objectives, and whether they even manage a joint declaration. We will almost certainly see President Sisi return for another term in Egypt. And we are going to see Brazil take over the G20 presidency, kickstarting their two-year period of international agenda setting across various international fora. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we have discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details of our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you, Alessandro, Ahmed and Ed, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>